All right. I always have to readjust those because it's like taller than me. How are y'all today? Wow. One person is good. I'm so glad. Are y'all excited for the Super Bowl? I am not going to lie. I did not know who was playing until Dave just said something a little while ago. It's exciting. It's fine. I'm excited for football. Um, so we have been in the book of Judges, and it just never ceases to be interesting, if not entertaining, right? And this week is no different. I mean, I kind of feel like we're watching, like, telenovelas or, like, soap operas, right? Because previously on the land of Canaan, we've seen uncles marry their nieces. We've seen uh, kings poop themselves to death. We've seen people drive nail pegs into their temples of their head. We've seen somebody kill 600 men just with this one spear. I mean, this is vicious stuff, right? So today is just as interesting, but thankfully just a little less violent than it has been. So once again, we're going to see uh, that when a judge passes away, the people yet again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And in other words, what that means is they start worshiping idols. Um, so this cycle that the Israelites have been on should be pretty familiar to us at this point, right? We've got Israel's apostasy. I think I even have a, a little cycle on there. In other words, so them abandoning God, God allowing them to be captured by these other nations and oppressed, and then Israel finally cries out to God. God sends a judge to save them. They experience peace for a little bit, and then the judge dies, and then they go right back to worshiping other people's idols. So the stories so far have been fairly short, but this story here actually covers three chapters. So clearly the author has, wants us to take a little deeper look, and today we're going to get to see why. So we're going to cover about Gideon, and we're going to see the first half of his story today. So we're in Judges 6, chapter 6, starting in verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whatever, whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leaving no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come like locusts in number. So this time the people that are in control of the Israelites are the Midianites. And it's so bad that they're, the Israelites are having to live in caves because they would just come and wipe out everything. And it says they're like locusts in number. Um, there's so many they couldn't even count them. Now y'all know what a locust is, right? It's like a grasshopper, but a little bit bigger. And it says there would be a swarm of them. So this, I have a picture of what a swarm of locusts would actually look like. So, like, by themselves, they're fine and they're harmless, but then when they come in numbers, when there are hundreds of them, they just wipe out everything. And so it's interesting that the author actually compares them to locusts because for the Israelites, this is a fresh reminder of them, of the past when they were enslaved in Egypt. Because if you remember, if you read Exodus, right, God sends those ten plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt so he can save Israel. One of those plagues was locusts. And in Israel, in Exodus 10, it even says it was such a dense swarm that the land darkened, and there was not a single green plant left after they were done. So this is the image that they have, that the readers would have understood very well. And so that's what the Israelites are experiencing once again, these people coming and taking absolutely everything. So unlike other stories where Israel cries out to God, God sends the judge and saves them, before he sends help, he sends a prophet. So instead of sending a savior, he's going to send 
a sermon. So the prophet tells them in verse 8, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of a house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So God wants them to understand the kind of situation that they have put themselves in before he is going to help them. So I've noticed as a parent that I can sometimes be quick to lecture my kids. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, you know, with your parents getting a lecture. But now I understand and I try and be really conscious and I try and, you know, let them make their mistakes, you know, give them grace, um, let them learn. But the struggle is real because I really just want to swoop in and tell them, like, you did this wrong. This is why. If you had just listened to me and done what I said, that wouldn't have happened. Um, but sometimes it's not always the best. And I feel like God um, is great about this. I feel like he's not quick to nag, right? He's slow to anger. He's patient. Um, and sometimes he lets us dig ourselves in these holes right before we can recognize our need for God. And that's what we see with judges because he, see, he lets them get overtaken by these nations until they finally realize, right, we abandoned God. So, but here, for some reason, before he rescues them, he feels the need that he needs to share some important truths with them. And that makes me wonder why. Makes me think maybe their repentance hasn't been totally genuine so far. Because through this prophet, God is reminding them that why they are getting themselves in these situations. He tells them that I did all this for you. I told you not to follow after these other idols and you didn't listen. That's why you're in this situation. And he wants them to get it because they haven't been getting it. You get it? He wants them to be truly repentant because before Israel was crying out, and sure they were regretful, but were they repentant? And what is the difference between being regretful and repentant? In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, it says, Godly grief brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So let's look at it. Let's look at the difference between repentance and regret. So repentance, or like it said, godly grief leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So it's a changed heart. So it's an understanding and a feeling, the loss of relationship when sin happens. So it's feeling sad over your broken relationship with God. But you're also able to move past it because you can recognize Christ's sacrifice and you feel a deeper gratitude for what he has done for Christ taking the blame on himself. So you actually deserve, deserve far worse than whatever happened here, but that punishment's not going to come to you because Christ already covered it for you. So we can restore our relationship with God because of this grace that's already extended to us, and that's how we're able to move forward. Now, regret is not a heart change. You're simply just sorry over what you lost or sorry you got caught. It's sorry over the consequence that happened more than the sin itself. Because if there wasn't any consequence, would you have been sorry? Tim Keller says this about regret. The focus is all horizontal, worldly, not at all vertical, con concerned about how it affects relationship with God. Therefore, as soon as the consequence goes away, the behavior comes back. The heart has not become disgusted with the sin itself, so the sin remains rooted. Regret is all about us. How am I being hurt? How is my life ruined? How is my heart breaking? But repentance is all about God. How is he grieved? How his nature as creator and redeemer is being trampled on? How his repeated saving actions are being 
trivialized and used manipulatively. That last part is especially convicting for me. Because when we treat sin with such lightness, or we're more concerned that we got caught instead of turning from the sin, basically tramples on this gift that he gave us, right? Because Jesus went to his death for us. So our response shouldn't be to walk all over that, but instead we should treat this gift with care and strive to live a life honoring and living up to God who is redeemed, the person that God has redeemed you to be. So when I think about repentance versus regret, it reminds me of the story of Moses and Pharaoh that I just talked about. Because when God sends those 10 plagues, sometimes, a few of the times, Pharaoh will tell Moses, he'll call him up and say, okay, go tell your God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Ask him to take this plague away and then y'all can, be, can go free. Well, of course, if you've read the story, you know he changes his mind and he doesn't let them go free. Because was he truly sorry? No. It, he just didn't like what was happening and he thought he could manipulate the situation to get out of the pain, but yet somehow still get his way. Because it's this insincere calling out for God when you need something and then conveniently forgetting him when everything is okay. And we do this. We turn to God when things get tough or sometimes we try and make promises saying, you know, if you help me with this, I promise I'll be better or I promise I'll, you know, do this. I promise I'll read my Bible more. Um, But what that really shows is is a lack of understanding and a lack of fear of the Lord. Because who am I to make promises to God? Who am I to try and manipulate my standing with the creator of the universe and try and get what I want regardless of what it costs to God? So take a look at your own life. In those moments, what are you sorry for? Are you sorry for getting caught? Or that you just don't get to do that again or watch that again? Or are you sorry about how it has affected your relationship with God? It's not about whether or not you sin, but how you respond to your sin. Sometimes we can get ourselves into these cycles, much like the Israelites, you know, where we can just continuously go back to what we know is not good for us. But how do we break this? If you're, if you're stuck in this pattern of messing up in the same thing over and over again, do you still go back to that person or that thing that you know is not healthy for you? If you stop to consider, you might simply be just regretful and not repentant. Are you willing to identify the idol that is under that sin that is still somehow attractive to you? So there's two things that's helpful in breaking these cycles or is the God's word and community. And I know that's like almost like beating a dead horse, right? Because you've heard us say those two things over and over again, right? You need to be in God's word. You need to be in community. Um, but you do. Because how will you know truth or wisdom or know what to do in situations or have a relationship with God if you're not listening to his words. Tim Keller says that that is the reading the word, that is where we learn who we are, and that is the means through which God brings spiritual renewal in our lives. And community is so important because you may not be as self-aware as you think you are. Sometimes we need someone on the outside to point out what's really going on. I know I've been so thankful for people in my life who have called me out on my own hypocrisy. When I'm saying I believe one thing about God, but I am totally not living that way. You know, God says he's patient over here, but I'm like losing it with my kids. Or God says he's full of forgiveness and that we should forgive someone, what, 70 times seven times or whatever. But yet I can't seem to forgive this one person for doing that one thing. So oftentimes 
there is an idolatry problem going on at the root of our surface problems. So back to the Israelites. Of course, Israel show, before Israel shows any kinds of repentance, God sends someone to save them anyway, and he sends Gideon. Um, but isn't that how it always is, right? Like he sent, uh, he gave us salvation before we even realized that we were messed up. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ saved us. Christ died for us. Tim Keller says, God does not begin to save us because we repent. We repent because he's begun his saving work in us through the external work of his son and the internal work of his spirit. So Judges 6, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gabriel, or Gideon, sorry, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord, Lord turned to him and said, God, in, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Because, hold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So if you remember Exodus, this should sound somewhat familiar to you. This sounds kind of like how Moses responded when God commissioned him to save the Israelites by saying, who am I to save Israel? Like, I'm not good enough. Why are you asking me? I, I can't do this. And it, God answers him in the same way. He answers Gideon the same way he answered Moses. He doesn't give him a pep talk. He doesn't say, oh, but you're such a great guy. Like, you're so talented. You are going to do great at this. No, he just says, but I'm going to be with you. And that's enough because God is enough in any situation. And that's all we need. Sometimes God calls us to be someone who we aren't yet, but will eventually grow into. So now for Moses, he keeps going on with his excuses, but here Gideon feels the need to test God to make sure it really was the Lord giving this talk. So in verse 21, Gideon brings his offering, and then the angel of the Lord reached out to the, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and a fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So was it not at this point that he finally realized, like, this was the Lord trying to teach, talk to him, right? Like, he had a whole conversation, and it's just now here. I mean, it's kind of understandable, right? Thinking about where Gideon's coming from, I mean, he felt like God had forsaken them. You know, sometimes we can see trials in our life as God leaving us or abandoning us or he's just left us out to dry or doesn't care. I mean, even Gideon thought that God had left the Israelites when, you know, when he's questioning God, saying, where are all these wonderful deeds that I heard about in Egypt? But I love God's response because he's saying, well, I'm telling you to go, so go and save them. Like, these are, you want some cool miracles? Like, I'm about to do it. I'm using you, so go. This is it. This is me saving Israel. But what about the promises in Romans 8:28, when he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and who are called according to his purpose. When we feel like God's abandoning us, 
Sometimes we have to trust in God's goodness and look at trials as an opportunity and not abandonment. Because we know God is good. We know God's all-powerful. And sometimes trials are to reveal our sin. Sometimes they're simply to strengthen your faith. But above all, we know that God has a purpose and, and for the why things happen. And so we can trust in his good and his timing because it's never going to be our own timing, right? So then the Lord tells him in verse 25, Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Did you catch that? Tear down the altar that your dad has. That's what Gideon has grown up with. Even his dad has an altar to a pagan god that's in their backyard or, you know, outside their cave. Um, so Gideon, however, immediately obeys, and he does it, but he does it in the middle of the night because he's afraid how people will respond. He's afraid of what his family will do. And in the morning, the people realize what have happened, and they are mad, and they want to kill him. Thankfully, his father stands up for him in verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? For whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So he's given this new name, which means let Baal contend, almost like mocking this false god, saying, like, show how powerless, see how powerless you are because your altar was broken down. But isn't it crazy? God is showing such immense grace in rescuing these people who have clearly turned their back on God. And and think about Gideon. Like, Gideon knew the story of Moses, right? He, he knew that God had saved them from, is, from Egypt. So the people had been passing down these stories. But they had combined their belief in God with worship of other idols. So they may have claimed to believe the Lord, but their life was revolving around other idols. I mean, they were mad when those idols were taken away. I think when we hear stories like this, we think, oh, this is just obvious, like, their sin is in their face. How are they not seeing this? It's so clear that they're going against God. But you can for, you forget how easily we can be blind to our sin, even when it's right in front of us. We can be desensitized. We can lie to ourselves. But that's why we need to be in the Word, where we're continuously hearing truth and wisdom and surrounding ourselves with believers who can call us out and show us the harsh reality of ourselves. Sometimes we need to remove the idols from our lives before we can be taken out of hard situations. A lot of times it's those very idols that are putting you in those situations. So what is it in your life that's holding you back and that's holding your devotion instead of God? Michael Wilcock says this, in every age there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires. Whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can themselves, them, than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our ma manipulating them so we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us. We say we worship God, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. So what controls your heart? What would you be livid about if it was taken away from you? Or what dictates the majority of your day and your life? So finally, before Gideon goes out to battle, which we'll see that next week, he feels like he needs to give God just a couple more tests. 
So in verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew that it, the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, just, uh, please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So I'd say this is pretty bold of Gideon to do this, and also pretty gracious of God to let him do this, to test God. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to see that it really is God talking to him. So think about where Gideon's coming from. He's heard stories of God, right? He, but he doesn't have a Bible. He may not be able to read, or at least he doesn't have a way to read a Bible. His family has basically abandoned God, so he doesn't have much to go on as far as knowledge about God. He has these stories that he heard before he felt like God abandoned them. So he's asking God for this supernatural revelation of himself to show who he really was so that he can understand his character better. So this story isn't an excuse for us to start testing God, right, which we kind of already do sometimes. You know, Lord, if I'm supposed to you know, do this sport, make it really clear today, I'm supposed to date this person, please let them like my Instagram today, and then clearly we're supposed to date. Um, but that's not what this means. Um, this isn't about doing some test to try and make some decision of whether or not to do something. This is about understanding who God, who God was and getting a bigger picture of him. And thankfully, we already have that, don't we? We already have Christ. We have the assurance of Christ and everything he did for us on the cross. He's already revealed himself through God's word and through Christ's death, life and death and resurrection. So God has given us everything we need to understand his character and his heart for his people. All we have to do is open our eyes. Sometimes we can think two ways. We can either think, oh, I'm too messed up for God to love me or use me. Or we can think, because God loves me, I can be as messed up as I want to be. But either way, that shows a lack of understanding of the cross. Because Christ has paid the ultimate price through his blood so we can live a redeemed and changed life that should center on God. So our mistakes are wiped clean. Our weaknesses don't matter, but our love for God is everything. So we have the privilege of already understanding this and already seeing God's character and getting to live with that. So when God calls us to do difficult things or he's trying to open our eyes to our own idols in our life, instead of hesitating, we should re instead, we should respond like Isaiah when God called Isaiah because his first response was, here I am, send me. And that's how we should respond. Here I am, send me. Right, I'm going to pray before we break out. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for these stories, Lord. While they're, they're crazy, um, they give us a glimpse of your character, of your grace. Lord, when you come to rescue people like us who don't always deserve it and don't always recognize our need for you, um, God, I pray that we can um, just be more aware of what our heart is really clinging to, Lord. And I pray that we can um, instead turn to you instead of other things in this world. 
thinking they'll satisfy us, Lord, but knowing that you have already paid the price for us, Lord, and you will ultimately satisfy us. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.